Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, we've written 36 cookbooks, including the latest, the Instant Air Fryer Bible, out for all air fryers, a great way to make all kinds of delicious air fryer food. Just had a friend write us the other night and said that he had made the tuna melts and what, what else? <laughs> and the classic the, Rachel. The Rachel, which most people don't even know what that is. That's like a Reuben, but made with turkey and coleslaw instead mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. corned beef and sauerkraut. Mm-hmm. He made the classic Rachel from that book. He would made the tuna melts, which are really unbelievably decadent and delicious with an easy microwave bechamel poured over the top of them. Mm-hmm. Delicious mm-hmm. stuff always round. But we're not talking about anything air frying in this episode of the podcast. Instead, we're going to talk about hot stuff and chilies. We've got mm-hmm. cooking tips. We've got chilies. what's making us happy in food this week. So much coming up. So let's get started. Chili's AC food. When you think about it, you probably, like me, think about places like China, Southeast Asia, even India. So weird. So weird. <laughs> so weird. Because for this Texas boy, I do not think about any of those things. <laughs> you now, think about Mexican food. I, when I was a kid, we ate a lot of Tex-Mex when I lived in Dallas when I was a kid. But Tex-Mex was never as hot as New Mexican food. Right. And when I think about hot food as a kid, like New for my own. Interesting. Yeah, I think about our trips to Santa Fe when I was little. That food was hot. Well, we all thought that food was super hot. Yeah, but it's funny because all the world's chili peppers, whether it's from the Philippines to Sri Lanka. To New Mexico. To New Mexico likely came from the first domesticated chili plants in what is now Mexico. Yeah, that's so you think about these places all over Asia and other parts of the world, but really hot stuff, hot foods started in what is now Mexico. Well, this all speaks to the age of colonization, the age, as it used to be called, of exploration. But now it's better to say, I think, at the age of colonization, mm. since that's what it was. It, it speaks is. to the way that the global markets changed. I mean, listen, you know, potatoes, we all know, are an Andean right. root vegetable. And yet now the world's largest producer of potatoes is China. Yep. So it, it is part of the growing global commercial nexus that happened in the age of colonization and it is still with us and chilies of course have now gone all around the world before the 16th century places like southeast asia where hot food was treasured didn't have chilies but they had ginger and black pepper right and that's where they got their heat right lots and lots of heat available there i mean there's all kinds of reasons why we like the burn of chilies and i have to tell you that when i was a kid going back to those Santa Fe trips in New Mexico and all that stuff, I didn't like hot food, and I didn't like it. Uh, it burned my mouth, and actually, I used to have a chemical reaction. My lips would blow up bright red and big, and my mother would put Vaseline. Your mother and my, her Vaseline. my lips to cool them down. Seriously. And it's funny, it wasn't until I was in college that I ever thought I could even eat a jalapeno, but in college, my roommates would go out, they'd all sit at this Mexican restaurant, I went to Baylor in Waco, Texas, and we'd sit at this crummy Mexican restaurant, really downscale what college kids could afford. And my roommates and friends would all sit there eating all of the jalapenos out of the jar when they would bring the little bowl Mm -hmm. that was separate of jalapenos. And they would all, you know, be sweating and screaming and eating them. And I thought, well, heck, I should try this. And sure enough, I did. And now 
Good grief. I seem to pour Bruce's chili oil over everything. Growing up, we didn't have Mexican food, and we would go out for Chinese all the time, but my parents like Cantonese food. Oh, so, shrimp and lobster sauce. Yeah, basically, they love shrimp and lobster sauce and chicken chow mein. And shrimp I, and lobster sauce in a kosher home. We were not a kosher <laughs> home. Oh, my God. It's a double negative. Shrimp and lobster <laughs> sauce. It cancels it out. You can eat it. So there are theories to why people like spicy food. I mean, evolutionary biologists posit that our propensity towards spiciness is born out of necessity because yep. chilies do have some natural antimicrobial properties. And let's also say that the capsaicin, we'll get to this in a minute, which is the only burn in any chili ever all across the world. The chemical it makes. The capsaicin. The capsaicin also causes you to sweat, mm -hmm. and ultimately sweating is a cooling mechanism yeah. for the body. So you sweat a bit, and that sweat evaporates, just like if you're working out in the yard, and that sweat evaporates, and it keeps your skin temperature down. Which is why a lot of hot, weathered cultures like spicy food, but it's funny, psychology researchers say rather than out of necessity, our love of chilies is based on our thrill-seeking behavior as human beings. Oh, maybe. It's hard because thrill-seeking and pain-seeking often go over each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like riding a roller coaster. I love roller coasters. Bruce hates them. And I find the thrill in them, and he finds a headache in them. So it's, it's again, we've stepped over from thrill-seeking to pain-seeking, right. and that of course, most people don't want a pain-seeking no, behavior. No, most people are not going to stab themselves in the eye voluntarily. Oh, no. But they do give themselves no, a chemical not burn. Not even involuntarily, I no. hope. But those same people would give themselves a chemical burn in their mouth on purpose by eating chilies. But well, again, it's, it's all about thrill versus pain, right? Yeah. And we do know that chilies increase endorphin load. They do. They make you feel good. Yeah. Right? And we know that they bring on the endorphin in the brain, which is why, you know, if you eat something really, really super hot and you think, oh, my gosh, I am going to sear myself to death here. And then you wait about three minutes and it kind of starts to subside. You think, oh, I, I think I want more of well, that. Well, see, you just said the key word there. You think it's going to sear myself to death, but you know it's not going to, right? You know that this is I not guess. deadly, that unless you, I mean, unless you eat 20, you know, yeah. scorpion hot peppers. Yeah, but I if you're just eating ghost chili, so I don't know. No, but just eating super, super hot food is not going to kill we, you. I have to tell you this story. So Bruce and I went to this Chinese restaurant in Manhattan years ago, and there was this fish soup, and it was kind of the thing. We'd read about it, this thing to order, this fish soup, and it was, as I recall, lots of fish and vegetables but in a pretty clear broth. It wasn't cloudy at all. But it was unbelievably hot. I mean, searingly hot. There were sliced green fresh chilies throughout it. It was just like a sea of I fish mean, and chilies. I mean, searingly hot. So we ordered it, and the waiter, she, she said to us that white people were not allowed to send this back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so so if you're Chinese, you can send it back. I guess. But nice. she said white people cannot send this back. So I was like, well, okay, well, we're in. We're in for a penny, in for a pound. So we ate it, and it was unbelievably face-meltingly hot. It was unbelievably hot. I, I gasped through it. But let me tell you, we ate the bowl down to the bottom so that there was not even any broth left in it. And when she came back to our table, she was dumbfounded because she said, told us, Chinese people only eat the fish out of it. They don't drink the broth. And we had, like, 
eaten the whole thing. It well, was, what did we know? Uh, it was hot, but it was that thing, you know, like you sit there and you have something and you think, oh, my gosh, my face is melting off right now. And then you sit for a couple minutes, you have a drink of beer, you sit a couple minutes, you think, I think I want more of that stuff. <laughs> I think I, I want more. Well, I want to talk for a second, though, about the pain versus the flavor, right? Because mm. chilies can give you heat, but they also can give you a lot of flavor. And mm, the hotter do. you get in general, now there are some very hot chilies that will be very flavorful. But in general, in my opinion, that the hotter you get, you start to mask all the fruitiness and the other flavors of chili. So I like chilies that are both flavorful and warm. Yeah, because again, let's go back to this. There is only one chemical across all chilies that brings on the burn, and that is capsaicin. But that doesn't mean that chilies, their various kinds, aren't full of flavonids and all kinds right. of compounds that bring all kinds of other flavors to them. They are a fruit, basically. They are a fruit. So, And I think jalapenos are incredibly fruity mm. in the way that bell peppers are fruity. Bell peppers are of the same sort of family, but botanical family, as chilies, except they have no capsaicin in them. Or sometimes you can find bell peppers with just a slightest little bit of capsaicin in it, but not much. Right. But bell peppers don't have any. Um, and uh, let me tell you anecdotally, this is another anecdotal thing. I sometimes grow jalapenos in pots out on our deck in the summer here in New England. And um, I have to tell you that the older the plant gets, the hotter the jalapenos get. We've discovered that over the course of a summer, they get hotter and hotter Well, the longer they hotter. stay on that vine, well, that capsaicin it's, grows. It's, it's not even the long, it's even when we pick the small green ones. If we pick them in late August, it's like, wow, oh my gosh, they're going to take your face off. <laughs> Whereas in, in mid-June, they're still relatively sweet. It's very funny. It is really funny. Now, let's talk about that capsaicin for a minute. It is a chemical that is both alkali and fat-soluble. So those are two important things to know about it. So if, let's say you eat that hot chili and you burn your mouth and you need something to get rid of that burn. Most people grab a beer. They grab an iced tea. This is wrong. And it's wrong. You need to grab milk or butter or tortilla because the fat will dissolve it. Or go for at least lemonade, something acidic, because right. the acid right. will counterbalance the alkali and help neutralize we it. We knew this in Texas growing up because when I would get really hot uh, from a jalapeno, let's say, you know, my parents would take the jalapenos off the nachos at El Phoenix in Dallas where we ate and because I couldn't deal with the jalapenos. But, you know, some of the residue would still be on there, and I would get a reaction from it. I would always pick up and eat the lemon out of my mother's iced tea, and it seemed to calm the burn. And I think that speaks to the acidic and alkali problem. We didn't know so much about fat, and I learned that as an adult. But again, like Bruce says, capsaicin is fat soluble. Mm -hmm. So what you need to do to get it off your lips and out of your mouth is, as Bruce says, butter a tortilla, drink a glass of whole milk, get some even listen, this will even work, is just a teaspoon of olive oil. And by the way, that capsaicin doesn't come off your hands oh, very no. well. When Soap you, doesn't do it. When you cut chilies in the kitchen and you know that you can get a burn from touching then your mouth, your eyes, whatever, when you're working with chilies. The whatever part's really bad, trust me. Yeah, so anyway, uh, we don't want to go there. But uh, one of the ways you get chili off your hands is you put a little bit of olive oil or vegetable oil, some oil of some kind in your hands, rub them all, rub that oil all over your hands, and then wash them. Now 
the capsaicin will come off. There you go. That's a great way to not burn yourself when you're eating chilies. And I want to put one other thing. I know that there's a myth out there that spicy foods can cause ulcers, but it is not necessarily not true, true not that true. most ulcers are actually caused by a bacteria, by H. pylori. Not all, but some, and it's not the spicy food. No, it's not. Now, I do believe the truth is that if you have an ulcer, really spicy food can exacerbate the problem. It can make it hurt, yeah. Yes, and I think part of the problem is that the that spicy foods are often incredibly rich and complex because of fat and acids used to balance the chilies inside those super hot foods, and all that stuff will really aggravate an ulcer big time. So it's, it's a little bit of a horse and cart problem there, but no, in general – Eating chilies will not give you ulcers. Now, I'm not giving up chilies anytime soon, but I do eat with caution, right? Yeah. When foods are labeled yeah. super, super hot, yeah. something is labeled with seven chilies on it, I do be careful. So I always yeah. say, eat all the chilies you want, but yeah. eat them at your own and, risk. And uh, one more risk thing before we finish off this chili extravaganza. One more risk thing is that uh, you want to probably limit the extremely hot chilies you eat if you have high blood pressure or hypertension because chilies do the capsaicin and the heat does raise your blood pressure. Hmm. So it's an interesting thing that often high blood pressure diets will tell you to lay off the chilies and part of that has to do with the way that the endorphin rush is pulling your blood pressure up from the capsaicin. So it's all things to consider. Listen, uh, I, I, I'm telling you way too much. I have hypertension and I take an alpha blocker and uh, I'm still eating really hot stuff. So there you go. <laughs> I guess it's just a trade off. But it's under got. control. But yours is under control. <laughs> it is under control. Before we get to our next segment of the podcast, let me say that we have a newsletter. It comes out once every week, once every other week, something like that. We have lots of fresh recipes, lots of new content. We do not rehearse the podcast in our newsletter. No, we don't. Instead, it's original content. There's knitting, there's reading, there's recipes, there's bits about our lives, there's bits about life in New England, all that kind of stuff. comes out, again, once every week, every two weeks. You can find it by going to our website, bruceandmark.com, M-A-R-K.com, and you can sign up there. By that sign up, I will not see your email. And furthermore, we promise... In fact, I've set it up this way. We cannot access your email, and I cannot, therefore, sell it to anyone for any reason. At any time, you can get off the newsletter simply by clicking the link at the bottom of each newsletter. Check that out if you're interested. Up next, as is traditional, our one-minute cooking tip. There is no such thing as cooking wine, right? No. I want to repeat that. There is no such thing as cooking wine. There's Ugh. wine you would cook with, Ugh. but no cooking wine. Despite the fact that you may find cooking wine in your supermarket near the vinegars, think about where it is. It's basically there because that's what it is. It's a sweet and salty vinegar with a little bit of alcohol added, not enough that they can't sell it in a supermarket, but gross. Now, I am a firm believer in you should not 
cook with any wine you wouldn't drink, and but that doesn't mean cook so with funny. a $30 bottle. Okay, well, I'm sitting here thinking about how funny this is because I think we're old enough that we grew up in a world in which cooking with wine in the United States was considered innovative. Remember that old guy, the frugal gourmet? Mm-hmm. And I don't... Jeff we, Smith. I don't want to talk about his sexual peccadilloes, oh. but um, Jeff Smith had this show, The Frugal Gourmet, on PBS. He was very, very popular, and one of his books was actually called The Frugal Gourmet Cooks with Wine. Yes, it was a whole book about recipes and it was with wine. Because people in the United States didn't cook with wine. No. People abroad cooked with wine. Right. But people in the United States did not cook with wine. And this was considered like cutting edge. You and I grew up in an age in which cooking wine was the wine that people... Holland House. It was that Holland House oh, salty. And you got the yeah. Marsala, the sauternes. I know. Uh, so gross. It's so salty. It's so sour. It has no complexity to it whatsoever. And we grew up in a time in which this was not the case. I think a lot of people who are younger than we are, let's say if you're 30 years old, you may not even know what we're talking about when we say <laughs> cooking wine. You may not have ever even actually seen this thing. It's still in the grocery stores. You it can still is. find it. But cook with wine that you think is good enough to drink, and maybe that's two buck chuck. I don't know. It doesn't have to be super fine wine, but no. as long as you're comfortable drinking it, then you should be okay cooking with it. Before we go to our next segment of the podcast, let me say it would be great if you could subscribe to this podcast, if you'd rate it, it's even better. And if you could drop a comment, that is the best of all possible worlds. Thank you for doing that. We really appreciate the ratings and particularly the comments. They really help us on this unsupported and passion project cooking with Bruce and Mark. Okay, up next, we usually do a food interview with a celebrity or a cookbook author or somebody who's just been so great at getting all kinds of wild people on, food entrepreneurs, business owners, kind of crazy. But in this episode of the podcast, we're going to skip the interview and go straight to one of our favorite topics, food myths. We are going to debunk six of them. Now, if you remember, Mark and I wrote a book called Lobsters Scream When You Boil Them and 100 Other Myths About Food and Cooking, so we know what we're talking about when we say things like brown eggs are not healthier than white ones. Yeah, it's true. Lobsters Scream When You Boil Them is the only cookbook we've ever written. There's only a few recipes in it. The only cookbook we've ever written for which there is an audio book. There is an audio book. So you can download it for your commute. (laughs) It's unbelievable. There's an audio book of lobster scream when you boil them in a hundred other myths about food and cooking. Anyway, brown eggs are not healthier than white eggs. No way. The color of a chicken's egg is based on the chicken's DNA, not their diet. Now, what they eat can affect the flavor and color of the yolk. And yes. that we know firsthand. We once rented a house in northern Vermont, and there was a— When we say northern, we mean a Canadian mile border. from the Canadian border. And not far from the house was both a chicken farm and a strawberry farm. And they were the same farm. They just grew chickens and strawberries. And they would throw the strawberry hulls and the rotted strawberries to the chickens when strawberry season was up. And those chicken eggs, the yolks were like sunset orange, and they actually okay. had a little flavor a of strawberry. That was, they were so it does affect the inside of the egg, not the outside of the egg. No, I mean it's nice to get brown eggs and green eggs and blue eggs. They're beautiful, and, but the ones that healthier, are beautiful, right? and you're going to pay more for them because people think they're healthier, but not. And right. it is true that by and large, industrial chicken eggs 
are white, but there are industrial brown there are. chicken eggs. And they cost more at the supermarket because people think they're healthy. Yeah, don't be fooled. Buy up if you're going to buy organic or local. Don't buy up just because of the color. Okay, so what is our second food myth? That there are what? Bugs in your strawberry frappuccino. What? Well, what Starbucks mean? used to use the cochineal bug-based red food coloring. Now it's called carmine coloring. And it is. It's an insect-based food coloring in their coffee drink, but they stopped using that in 2011, but people still say you're getting bugs in your strawberry frappuccino. No. What? But the bigger myth... Wait, but anytime you eat xanthan gum, anything with xanthan gum in it, you're getting... Well, you're not getting bugs, but you're getting bug residue in your food. You're getting bug excrement. But... <laughs> The, this is you have to okay. grind. You have to grind up these bugs to get the carmine food coloring. But they okay. don't use it anymore. I think the bigger myth is calling a frappuccino a coffee drink. <laughs> that's okay. what I think. That's that's huge, and uh, <laughs> people are going to at us over that. We'll and, have a whole um, segment on that. Uh, yeah. We're going to do a whole segment. There's no way that a frappuccino is a coffee drink. Come on, give me a break. You <laughs> like Coke. You don't like frapp- You don't like coffee. So. <laughs> Oh, come on. Come on. Give me a break. You like Coke. You don't like coffee. I mean, give me a break. Okay. Our next food myth is the five-second rule. And let me just say, we all know this rule that you drop something on the floor. You have five seconds to pick it up. Okay. I want to tell you a little secret. Bacteria and germs and viruses and any other matter on the floor doesn't, none of it owns a stopwatch. (laughs) Not any of it owns a stopwatch. So if you drop it on the floor, whatever there's on it. They're not going to wait five seconds and then jump on the food. So it is contaminated the second it hits the floor. No, it's so ridiculous. In fact, there are all kinds of studies about this. You can go on online and come up that basically say that if you drop a piece of toast, not buttered toast, but just plain dry toast on the floor, and you leave it there five seconds, it's no different than if you left it there 20 minutes. Now, that doesn't mean you can't eat it. I mean, it depends where you're dropping it. That's I mean, right. I, I eat things from the floor all the time, but oh, certainly at, at home, not necessarily if I'm out, but eh, that, that's we can get on to other things. So the other... <laughs> okay. I don't want to know. I really... I don't eat things off the floor, mm. really. Huh? One of my favorite food myths is, this kills me, flat water is more hydrating than sparkling water. Wait, What? I've read it on so many memes. I've seen it well, all over the internet. Okay. Now wait, wait. I got to think about it. Look, this is clearly a big enough myth that the International Journal of Sports Medicine ran a study to test it out. They studied this of whether you got more hydrated by drinking flat water than sparkling okay, water. Okay, okay. Here's my thoughts: is that it's not true. Uh, this is my completely unscientific but graduate school educated brain talking. It's can't be more hydrating than flat water. Sparkling water can't be more hydrating than, uh, than flat water. But there are bubbles in sparkling water which do take up space that would be filled with water molecules with H2O in flat water. So my hunch is you have to drink more sparkling water to get the same hit as flat water. That could be what's going on also that you can't drink as much sparkling no. water, which is the same you theory that you're saying. Be- you can't chug it because it's sparkling and it gives you gas. So eat drinking flat water. I love these things. It's like, you know, watermelon too. Oh, it's so hydrating. And coconut water, it's so hydrating. You know what else is hydrating? Water. 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 And yeah, this leads to another myth, which is actually not on our six 
six myth list today, but it's one of Bruce's and my favorite pet peeves. It's when people on television shows drink champagne out of the bottle. <laughs> Have you ever tried to do that? If, because if you do, it'll explode in your face. It'll... You can't do it. The bottleneck is so small that yeah, and no. the carbonation hits your lips and explodes back. Yeah, no. You know, you now, people it. are always picking up bottles of champagne and downing them on some HBO show, and I'm like, But it's uh, not champagne in that bottle. No. <laughs> you can't do that. It's like sparkling water. It'll explode all over your face. Can't Give me a break. It. Okay, this, here's another actual food myth that we talked about. Um, you cannot refreeze meat. This That's is a myth. not true. It's a myth. It's a myth. You can refreeze meat. The safety issue is if meat is thawed in the refrigerator where it is kept under 40 degrees Fahrenheit. 40 or under. It is safe to refreeze. If it's thawed at room temperature or at anything warmer than 40 Fahrenheit, then it is not safe because it's too warm and bacteria could have grown, and then you refreeze it, and then on the next thaw, the bacteria really proliferates. And let me say there's a second caveat on this, is that if you have thawed it in the fridge, not on the counter, but on the fridge, and it has thawed out from the freezer in a 40-degree or less fridge for under 48 hours, it has been thawed for under 48 hours, you can still refreeze. So if you take that package of ground beef out tonight and you're going to make it on Wednesday and you put it in the refrigerator and it thaws and on Tuesday night somebody calls up and says, let's go out to dinner tomorrow night on Wednesday. And you're like, oh, okay. You can take that package of ground beef and put it back in the freezer. Put it right back in. You can. No you problems can. asked. So that whole myth that you can't refreeze meat is just a myth. And for the last one we're going to talk about, and this one cracks me up. People still believe this. If you want to eat healthier, shop the perimeter of the supermarket. This is because of Michael Pollan, and this was his idea, and it is really honestly one of the dumbest ideas (laughs) I've ever heard. You speak so highly of you. Oh, God. (laughs) It's it's so idiotic. Shop the perimeter. Okay, yes, I agree. The produce is on the perimeter. Okay, I So is the fish and the meat and all that. And so is the cream. So is the heavy cream and the butter, which... Okay, I'm not saying and the you, bakery. Shouldn't, you shouldn't eat these things. Yes, when I walk into my big Y in rural New England, the perimeter of my supermarket is the bakery with the chocolate cakes. And the prepared foods and the fried chicken. Right. This is so silly. Whereas in the center aisles of the supermarket, I'm not saying that there's not healthy stuff on the perimeter of the supermarket, mm-hmm. but in the center aisles are great things like whole grains. Yep. There are beans. There are there canned are tomatoes. brown rice. There's canned tomatoes. There are all kinds of healthy foods inside the supermarket as well as on the perimeter. And there's all kind of junk on the perimeter as well as in the center of the supermarket. It's really garbage advice. And it really, <laughs> wow, you're really oh, how it do makes you really me feel about so it? mad because somebody has a giant platform and they put this thing out that sounds so intuitive and you think, oh well, you know that sounds great. And then you walk in your big wine, you're like, well, the perimeter of my child. A supermarket chocolate covered cakes, so I guess I should just eat those and I'll be really healthy. It makes me, can you tell how mad it makes me? It makes me just furious. And you know, I mean, yes, is there great yogurt on the perimeter of my supermarket? Of course. Is there also great yogurt with a cup of strawberry jam in it? Uh, yes, there's mm-hmm. also that sitting right there. There is. So I, I think that this is written for really high-end tech California people who go in really fancy supermarkets like Draeger's, and they're beautiful and curated and fabulous, but honestly, they're not how most of us live. No, they're not. There's healthy food throughout the supermarket. 
Okay, up next, as is traditional, our last segment, What's Making Us Happy in Food This Week. So uh, you get to go first. My rice cooker. It continues <laughs> to make me happy week after week after week after week. I was just thinking about this week. this morning. I love my rice cooker because it cooks every kind of rice you can imagine. And Mark even has it going right now with spelt berries in it. Yeah. And he soaks them and then he puts them on the brown rice setting. It cooks everything Perfectly. I love the rice cooker. I, I, I saw somebody post on Facebook a couple of weeks ago about should I get a rice cooker? And this is a very prominently great cook. He makes fabulous food. He works in the food industry, but he's not a chef, but he cooks like a chef. And he makes fabulously good food. And he wrote, should I get a rice cooker? And so many of the responses were so snotty on, oh, no, I know how to cook rice on the stove. And blah, 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 blah. And I thought to myself. Holier than thou. Oh, my God. I thought to myself, yeah, one billion Chinese people are wrong. You're right. Rice cookers are just absolutely unnecessary. I mean, all through South Asia, too, India and yeah, China and Japan, on. every household has a rice cooker. And it makes rice so perfect. It makes perfect brown rice Perfect fluffy white rice. And yes, can I make white rice on the stove? Of course I can. Of course I know how to do it. Of course I could set it all up and let it go. But in this case, in a rice cooker, all I have to do is put the rice in, add the water to the line on the side of the cooker. Push the button. Push the button. It sings me a little song. And then it keeps the rice warm. You know, We've been feeding one of our dogs a lot of rice for his digestion. He's an older dog. And I put rice up for him the other night, and I left it overnight, and I had forgotten that I'd even put the rice cooker on. And in the morning, the rice was still warm. The rice cooker kept yep. it fresh and beautiful. Of course. So it's great. I mean, you go into a sushi restaurant, they've got big things of rice and rice cookers that have been there all day. It was just the snot effect on Facebook about, I know how to cook it on the stove. That just drove me crazy. <laughs> good for you. All these food bloggers and f- influencers and all, and being so snotty about not having a rice cooker, and I just thought, what is wrong with you that you are so down on these things? Of course, we all know how to cook it on the stove. That doesn't mean that this isn't a great product to have. Okay, so what's making me happy? In- <laughs> what is making you happy in this week? <laughs> I'm really on a tear this week about rice cookers. Okay, what's making me happy this week is laminated biscuits. And I have to tell you this little story. Okay, so Bruce went to Boston. And he taught some cooking classes in Boston last week. For Butcher Box. And I was left to my own devices. And if you know us, you know that I, Mark, am the writer of the pair, and Bruce is the chef. And I don't do a lot of cooking for myself, but he was out. And I told you in the last episode of this podcast that I love duck eggs. So I got myself some duck eggs for dinner. And then I wanted to make buttermilk biscuits. And I, you know, I love Natalie Dupree's recipe. And I've used it a billion times for her food processor biscuits. And I think it's a brilliant recipe. Really nice. The cream recipe food processor. It's delicious. But in this case, I wanted to make buttermilk biscuits. And I wanted to make them slightly differently. So I looked up this recipe. And you can find it online on Bon Appetit. And it's a vague lamination process for making biscuits. It's wild. You roll it out, then you cut it into quarters, and then, you know, you basically stack the quarters, and then you pat it down, and then you cut it into quarters again, and you stack them, and then you roll it gently out, and then cut it into biscuits, which are mostly squares, and you bake them. And it did come out really wild. It doesn't have that soft velvety center that many Southerners like me love in biscuits. You know how they get that creamy velvety center. Instead, it had thousands of layers. It did. Of, Even in the photo, it looked like it was yeah, layered. It, it looked beautiful. Of it, online. It, it was gorgeous. It was really an odd way to make biscuits. I don't think I've ever made a laminated biscuit before. And 
I'm not sure that in the future I won't just go back to Natalie Dupree's recipe because it's the tried and true favorite. But and it's you know it's much more like my Southern heritage. But this was a really interesting technique of making biscuits, and they ended up really layered and really crunchy. It, wow, it was it was it kind of interesting. Beautiful. Yeah, and you had that with your duck egg for dinner. I did, and a chicken <laughs> and and kale sausage. It was just perfect. Yeah, a yeah. perfect dinner. Okay, that's the podcast this week. I'm thinking with Christian Mark. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being on this journey with us. We really appreciate it. Connect with us on Facebook under the group Cooking with Bruce and Mark, or under our own names, Mark Scarborough or Bruce Weinstein. We're also on Instagram as Bruce A Weinstein and Mark Scarborough. You can find us all there if in their life you want to have more literary things check out my podcast walking with dante a slow walk through dante's unbelievable poem which most people know as the divine comedy but which he only titled comedy so check out that podcast otherwise we will see you next week and the week after and the week after that on another episode of cooking with bruce and mark